marriage is, and you don't need any help. Is that what I'm hearing? No big deal. I got this baby figured out. Piece of cake. <laughs> you know, I, I know the reality of marriage, partly because I am married. And being married is sometimes really hard. Being married and doing it incredibly well is, I think, pretty rare. I'm, I honestly can stand before you and say that. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It has incredible potential. It is a gift from God. But how many of us really take hold of what we've called Genesis 2 marriage? You know, the marriage that God created when he brought Eve to Adam and he said basically, wow, someone like me but different, all these things we've talked about. As opposed to the Genesis 3 marriage when sin enters into the human heart and criticism starts to happen and, and, and blaming and all of these things, which just, as I said previously, just knock the wheels off the bus, Right? If you get really honest with yourself, marriage is a struggle. Marriage is a challenge. It's one of the most intimate relationships, probably the most intimate relationship, potentially, that we have. And, and it's something that can be fantastic and good, but it's, it's something that can be um, difficult. Sometimes the fantastic and good part seems elusive, you know? You ever feel like it's, there's something more, but it's just out there and I can't take hold of it? My suggestion to you, and I've been a pastor a long time now, and I've talked to a lot of couples when they struggle, and all couples, couples struggle, every single one of them, right? Um, but but, but my, my impression is, my thought is, and I think there's biblical warrant for this, which we'll talk about today, is that a lot of couples never take hold of the potential. And they never discover the thing that marriage can be and for which they long. And I mean that. People long for it. So I'm going to talk today about why marriage is tough, but more importantly, I'm going to talk to you about how to make it great. And it's not my idea, it's the Bible's idea. Uh, I'm going to share with you what I want to call a secret today. Now, could you imagine if somebody was able to package the secret for a really good marriage and then go along to people and say, I've got it figured out, and I'm willing to sell you the secret, and I, I will guarantee that you'll have a great marriage if you buy this package I think whoever that is would make a billion dollars quickly because people want their marriages to thrive. They want them to be filled with love and with joy and with goodness. They want, they want fantastic marriage. And I honestly believe that there's something in Scripture that we're going to look at today and, and next week as well that, that is the secret. You know, it's, it's there. And I want to unpack that for you today. What we're going to do is, is uh, dig in for a couple of Sundays on Ephesians chapter 5, probably the most quoted passage in the Bible about uh, how to do marriage, uh, certainly in the New Testament. Um, now, if you're familiar with the passage, and we're not going to take time to read it, but verse 22, this is the passage that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then verse 25, this is the passage which says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church ultimately died for it. Um, and there's something there that, that's significant, and again, next week we'll dig in. But I want to tell you, this whole idea of, of, of wives submitting to husbands, is, is, it's, it's um, well, in many quarters, it's not embraced enthusiastically. <laughs> um, and in many Christian marriages, it's something that's not easily done. You know, the reality is that for a lot of years, people have taken this passage, I want to tell you, and I want to stress this, and they have misunderstood the meaning of the passage, and men, husbands, have used it to really poorly treat their wives. I'm talking now thousands of years. 
by not really getting what God is saying in the text, husbands have dominated and controlled, husbands have treated their wives poorly, husbands have essentially said, you exist to serve me, I am the king of this castle, and you better do what I tell you to do. And it has harmed not only a lot of women, but a lot of marriages, and I want to tell you a lot of men. Because they never take hold of the thing that God wishes to unfold through this text. So we're going to, we're going to uh, go to this Ephesians 5 passage, but I'm not going to talk about verse 22 this week, or 25 this week. I'm going to talk about them next week, and I sure hope you want to come and figure it out. What I'm going to talk about is verse 21, because 21 comes before 22 and 25, and it powerfully informs both, I would suggest to you. Let me read this text to you, Ephesians 5, verse 21, and we're just going to dwell on it today. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A lot of texts and the traditional ones potentially say out out of the fear of Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the question of the day. You ready? To whom is that biblical commandment written? Who is supposed to submit to whom according to that verse? Um, Pretty clear in the the verse that follows, who's to submit, the wife, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, right? It's clear in verse 22 what the submission is all about in, in that contest, but who is being addressed here? Who is supposed to submit out of reverence for Jesus? Um, you know, who is supposed to, and let me define this a little bit for you, set aside their own interests for the sake of the other. Who, who is supposed to abandon self-interest and live for the other's well-being? Who is supposed to... Um, Uh, live sacrificially so that the other can benefit? Who is supposed to humbly serve the needs of the other? Who is it? According to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Well, I think it's absolutely clear who is supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Really, say some of you. We're going in a bit of a different direction, I think. My guess is, compared to some of what you might have brought to this text previously. But I'm telling you, you cannot look at a text like that and say that, you know, it applies only to a subset of the Christian population. Because it doesn't say so. It says, submit everyone to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this can come to a shock to people who feel that the submitting is only something that wives are to do for their husbands or in relationship with their husbands. I get that. I was once shocked when I read this and I thought of it. Um, You know, for folks who have thought previously that it is her role to serve him, you look at the verse and say, what? It's not just for wives to submit, but everybody who claims faith in Jesus? Hmm, interesting. I want to unpack this for you today, and here's how I'm going to do it. My friends, listen to me. The way of submission is the way of Jesus. The way of submitting our lives to to the other for the sake of the other out of love is the way of Jesus, who came as a humble servant, who laid down his life, who sacrificed himself 
who humbly served in order that we might know eternal life. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, 3 to 8. 3 to 8. It's only a portion of this incredible text, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm going to bring you to this understanding that Christ gives to us all about what it means to be his. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that, Je that Christ Jesus had. And here begins a quote, which is, was a hymn that was sung by the church in his day. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. <laughs> you know, I'm at the top of the heap and I'm great and I'm, you know. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And I want to tell you, that is a big step down for God. And if you haven't grappled with that, spend time on that this week. God became human. Then, when he appeared in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I want to tell you, my friends, Jesus submitted himself not only to becoming human for us, but to the death of a criminal on a cross. He gave up his life. He submitted his life so that we might know life, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have the potential, at least, of coming into a relationship with the living God, and as we've sung about this morning, have the incredible privilege to be called the children of God. Break free from fear, as we sang. So much of today's song apply, singing applies to what I'm saying. Jesus submitted himself. He served us. He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself for your interests and for mine. It is the way of Jesus. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Love this passage, by the way. But Jesus called them together, his people, you know, his crowd, people like you and me, people who believed in him, and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over, uh, over those under them. But among you, it will be different. He's defining a new kingdom. He's defining a new reality. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your, say it with me, servant and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave that's powerful right for even the son of man reference to himself came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many my friends i want to tell you this passage comes just after two of jesus disciples approach him and they say when you come into your kingdom and of course, they're thinking of a political kingdom where Jesus would lead a revolution and overthrow the Roman dictator and he would sit on a throne. They said, I want to sit on your left and I want to sit on your right. And what they were saying is, Jesus, we want to have those positions of significance and of honor and of power. Will you give it to us now? Jesus said, if you want to be great in my eyes, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become a servant rather than the one served. You get this. You know, you, you must submit your lives to the interests of other people. You must serve them. You must sacrifice yourself to meet their needs rather than asking them to do the same for you. See, here's the point. Submission, the way of submission, is the way of the kingdom of God. 
you know, taking hold of this command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way that God wants us to think, and it's the way that God wants us to live. We are called to be humble servants toward each other. We are called to self-denial. We are called to self-sacrifice. We are called to die to self to serve God and other people. And if you're familiar with Scripture, you know, you know I'm just quoting a lot of texts from the Bible. Boom, 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 boom. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of Christ. This is what it means to follow him, the Lord Jesus. Someone has written that the essence of sin, this is not, well, I think this is biblical, but I, I would want you to become convinced of it before you say, I think that is true. It's not a verse out of Scripture, but someone has said that the, that the essence of sin is to live for self rather than God and other people. What do you think? The essence of sin is to live for yourself rather than God and other people. Think of Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came along and said, if you really want life, you'll eat the fruit. And Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, disregard him, disbelieve the word he had spoken for their own sake, for their own benefit. I think that's absolutely true. <laughs> My friends, the reality is that this is why Jesus comes along when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, and he actually gives two. He says, love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. And then go love your neighbor. Go love that. And he uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to identify whoever you see in need, whoever you see is beaten and broken up, beaten and broken by the side of the road and dying, become a servant of that person. And of course, the Good Samaritan in the story tends to the wounds of the beaten up dying man and puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn and pays for his keeping until he is whole and restored. What did the man do? He submitted his time and his energy and his finances to bless the other. This is love. This is how the Bible defines love. Love God, love other people, Jesus says. You're beginning to see the reality of, of the power of Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence. How about out of fear for Christ? The maybe most accurate translation of that word, out of fear for Christ. I'm going to say this really briefly. This deserves a, an entire sermon series in itself. But a lot of people struggle. What, what does it mean to fear God? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. All through the Bible, the fear of God is described as such a wonderful thing which produced such, such excellent results in our lives. Said, I'm supposed to be afraid of God? Not in the sense of terror, no. This is what it means, just really briefly. To fear God in the Old Testament particularly is to be overwhelmed by the reality of who he is. To be overwhelmed by the reality of God, so much so as to be controlled in your life and behavior and attitudes by that overwhelming reality. Think of Israel coming to Mount Sinai where Moses would go up the top of the mountain and the cloud, God would cover the mountain and ten commandments would be given. But as they approach the mountain, there's fire and, and there's lightning and thunder and God comes and he reveals himself in power. And those people were overwhelmed by the power of God. So much so that they were controlled by it, not in a bad sense, but, by it, but in a good way. It's like, wow, we need to worship this God. When you look at the person of Jesus as God is portrayed most fully in the New Testament, it's progressive revelation of God in the Bible. We get glimpses of God, we're taught about God, it's all true. God the Father is a powerful, awesome, almighty being. But what do we see most fully of God in the person of Jesus? <laughs> I want to, and what is it that can then overwhelm us? 
to the point of deep reverence and fear of him. I want to tell you, we look at the person of Jesus, we look at the fact that he submitted his life for us, that he became human, that he humbled himself, giving up position, giving up power, and in the end, willingly choosing to die an incredibly difficult and awful death, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and mentally, in every way, as he was hanged on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to tell you, you contemplate that God long enough, that will overwhelm you. And that will begin to control how you live. You see it? We will say, what an incredible, what an awesome God we have in this one named Jesus. I wish to become like him. You know, it's one thing, and it's all fine and good to look at Ephesians 5.21 and kind of unpack it in this way and say, okay, submission is the way of Jesus. Submission is for all of us. <laughs> I would like to be such a humble, serving person in my marriage and in my relationship, but that's not an easy thing. Here's the problem. Every person who enters, I'm going to say something dramatic here. I've thought about it for a long time. It's, I believe it to be consistent with Scripture, see if you agree. I think those of you who are married are going to get it more quickly than those of you who aren't. And those of you who have been married longer than shorter are going to get it more quickly than those who have been married briefly <laughs> or more recently. But here's the statement. Every person who enters into marriage does so as someone who is a selfish, who is essentially self-centered, selfish, and proud. I hear a lot of people thinking, oh boy, I'm glad I came to church today. Smack. <laughs> but think about it. Every a person who enters into marriage does so with someone who's essentially self-centered, selfish, and proud. You get married long enough, you go, yeah, I get it, because that's me. I know it. If I get really honest with myself, I know it. You see, you see the idea is, and the way that we do life is, it's, it's all about me. <laughs> it's all about my well-being. See, since the fall, since sin entered into the human being's core this has been wired into us you know this is why in the curse god said you know adam i said actually the eve in the curse your husband will rule over you and that's why men have used ephesians 5:22 to rule over to dominate and control to get the benefit for themselves by misusing a biblical text for a long long time in many instances not always of course but too often and that's why, you know, in that ambiguous phrase that we talked about a few weeks again, God says to Eve, and your desire will be for your husband. And it is ambiguous, it's not clear, but one of the best potential translations to that is the idea that as he now wants to rule over you, you are going to want to rule over him. Anybody here beginning to get it? You go, ah. <laughs> uh, may, oh, boy. Uh-huh. You see, the idea, my friend, is that when two people come to the place where they want to rule over, when two people come to the place where they don't want to submit, but they want to control and dominate and get things for their own sake, first and foremost in marriage, you move into a subpar marriage, and you, you can easily move toward disaster. It doesn't work very well. But it's common. The idea is that... Uh, both parties potentially, but certainly one would say, you know, that I, I, I demand that you live for my sake. <laughs> While in this marriage, I'll live for my sake too. 
What unfolds when two people hold that perspective about marriage? It may not be spoken, it may not even be explicitly thought, but what if that's lived? Because it's thought somewhere back here at the back of our minds. Radical self-centeredness is at the heart of every marriage of human beings. And it will be destructive unless it is addressed. You know, we, we even start this way. I, I wish I had more time to talk to you about all the stuff I've read. I've read such cool stuff. But for thousands of years, human beings have married for a different reason than why we marry now. You know, often marriages have been arranged, even in our own cultures. Not that long ago, actually, that's the way it was. People would marry for social improvement, for financial gain. Married, you know, marriages being formed in a way that would find benefit for both parties and so forth. Do you know why people marry today? It's basically based on the idea of uh, romantic attraction. Oh, there he is, Mr. Handsome. There she is, Ms. Beautiful. And, and you know, the, the, the hormones fire and people get together. And, 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 and at, at the heart of this, this arrangement, at the heart of this process, there is the hope that as I enter into this relationship, I will have a relationship which will give me something I want. Now, Timothy Keller, a uh, great author, if you haven't read him, please do, fantastic author, Presbyterian minister in New York City, he calls this the me marriage. It's the reality of what characterizes marriage in this culture of ours. Uh, you know, we, th we think that, you know, as, as we get into marriage, we, 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 we want to get married because I want to be, What's the, you fill in your own blank for a minute before I tell you what I think. <laughs> I want to get married because I want to be happy. Now, that's a very different statement than saying, I want to get married so she can be happy. Or saying, I want to get married so he can be happy. No, I want to get married so I can be happy. Radical self-centeredness? Yeah, it's there. And I'm not saying this to condemn people or make you feel awful about yourself. I live there too. <laughs> but this is the reality of being human. It's just what's going on. We marry for our own benefit. And then Timothy Keller writes, upon marrying within a few months, three things happen. I just think this is kind of funny and cool. It says, the first thing that happens is that you realize that this Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful you've just uh, entered into permanent, lasting relationship with, you discover how self-centered that other person really is. I guess two months married? I'm really talking out of line here, aren't I? Don't look at us, okay. It doesn't matter. It's all of us. Some of us have to remember back a while. But the second, so the first thing is you realize, man, this person I've married is really self-centered. And then the, other, the next thing that happens is, is that the, per, the person you married realized how self-centered you are. And then the third thing that happens is that, you know, you become convinced that my spouse's self-centeredness is way more problematic than my own. <laughs> and it's like, oh boy, now what do we do? Well, you know what we do is we fight and we conflict. There's strife, there's antagonism over certain issues. And most people identify what those issues are and they just learn to leave them alone we don't go there because it hurts too much we don't want to fight who likes fighting but as we sort of kind of call a truce in some particular areas of life and, and as we back away from those particular particular areas we actually start to be back away from one another in marriage it's no longer the intimate genesis 2 relationship that we had hoped for See, I think there's a hope within us. There's a deep desire. There's, there, there's this longing in our hearts for Genesis 2, but somehow we just can't get to it because we live in Genesis 3. 
I do. I'm sinful. I'm proud. You know, it's there. When left to its own devices. See, what's going on? Think of it in this way. Two needy people entering into marriage, looking to the other to satisfy their need. Looking to the other to affirm them, tell me I'm okay. Looking to the other to prove to me my worth, prove to me that I'm significant, right? Uh, you know, there's a demand that they show me that I'm someone of value. There's, there's a request from them to provide joy in their lives. You know, be the person who convinces me that I'm both loved and lovable. And usually it is hoped that we will be, our needs will be addressed in all of these ways and more by somebody serving me and sacrificing for me and laying down their lives, their life, and submitting themselves for me. And my friends, I want to tell you, this is uh, something that no spouse can ever do. No human being can ever do. It's too much for one person to accomplish that in your life. And the only person who can is God. So let me take you now back to Ephesians chapter 5. And as someone once said, uh, tell you the rest of the story. Who remembers that? Yeah, all us old guys. But there's more to the story. And I'm not going to take you, as you might suspect, to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22, where wives are called to submit to their husbands. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, where husbands are told to love their wives, even to the point of dying for them. That's next week. Did I mention that already? What I want to take you to is Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. 21 being our key verse today. And I'm going to read it to you because in this text is the secret that can transform you and your marriage. And it happens in that order, by the way. I'm going to read a, 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 the scriptural reality to you, but before I do, I wanted to clearly communicate this, teach this to you. That verse 21, although it's a separate sentence in English, is actually the conclusion of a long sentence which the Apostle Paul writes uh, beginning earlier in the passage. It's a long sentence that he writes uh, where, where, where Paul describes those who are filled by the Holy Spirit of God and how they live as a result. And he says in this, this long sentence that you will experience such joy in your life that it will evidence itself in incredible praise before God. And, and it says that you will, because you are filled with the Spirit, develop a thankfulness, a gratitude in your heart from God that will characterize who you are. And it says then in verse 21 that if you are filled by the Holy Spirit, you will come to a place where you will have the capacity to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me read to you chapter 5, verses 15. 21 it says this so be careful how you live oh you know that that how many of us are, how many of us are really careful about how we live don't live like fools but like those who are wise any wise husbands and wives here christian people make the most of every opportunity in these evil days don't act thoughtlessly but understand what the lord wants you to do and then this what does the Lord want you to do? Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing psalms. Here's the joy expressing itself in praise. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourself. Making music to the Lord in your hearts. Can you hear the joy bubbling up? 
and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, gotta, we will be incredibly thankful to God if we're filled by the Spirit. And further, three sentences, but it's all one in Greek. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there it is, my friends. See, here, here's the deal. Um, when we discover... Oh, let me back up. To be able to do what we need to do to have a fantastic marriage is we have become people who have learned to serve one another, sacrifice for one another, lay down our lives for Christ, etc., 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 become humble servants of the other. We need a supernatural, divine intervention in our lives by the Spirit of God. We need God to become so real and powerful in us that he comes and he fills us up with his very being and he convinces us, number one, that we are loved and lovable. We don't need a spouse to do that. We don't need anybody to do that because God has spoken it into our lives. We, 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 we get convinced by the truth and the power of God that we are valuable and worthy in his sight. Christ has died for us. He teaches us that we are significant and, 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 and he affirms us. So that we, we can live our lives as people who are ready to serve without the, the draw, the demand, the need in our lives which calls other people to serve us. Even when people don't serve us in marriage, when our spouse won't serve us, won't care for us, won't give us the things that we thought we once needed, we don't need them to because God has provided for our need. I want to tell you, my friends, we can be so filled with the Spirit of God that, that God, by His Spirit, literally, miraculously, profoundly, and powerfully reaches deep into our heart and mind and changes us so that we become like the person of Jesus. The ones who, hit, who submitted His life out of love in everything He did. Now, can you imagine two people in a marriage who are so much filled by the Spirit of Jesus that they are thinking, acting, desiring the things of Jesus, that all they're doing is submitting to one another out of love. No, honey, let's do it your way. No, I really, I really want to care for you in this decision. And, and, and turn it around, and if that, was the, if that was the wife speaking, the husband saying, no, honey, I, I want to live for you. I want to sacrifice my desire for you. I want to lay down my life so that you might be blessed and benefited. I want to tell you, you're moving into Genesis 2 marriage in a big hurry. You're moving away from a Genesis 3 self-oriented, you meet my need demanding, sort of I'm the boss here, I'm going to take charge, I want things done my way sort of a relationship. And you are discovering love, the love of God for one another. I want to tell you, my friends, when we encounter that kind of marriage we start to encounter the reality of the kingdom of God among us. The way of Jesus um, transforming not only people but a relationship. <laughs> As people learn to love one another in a way maybe they have never loved before. And by the way, I want to tell you this is one of many profound reasons why believers must, according to Scripture, marry believers. Christians can marry non-believers, but they're essentially marrying a person who, who will not have the supernatural intervention of God in their lives to enable them to do what they cannot do on their own. 
And God says, stay away from that baby, <laughs> right? Find someone who trusts me, who knows me, who has the Spirit of God in them, who can be filled with the Spirit of God to be transformed into this loving, submissive, godly, self-sacrificing, life-laying-down person who will bring you joy in, in, in your relationship with him or with her. Okay, so I love the idea, where does the rubber hit the road for us this morning? Here it is, right here, right now. Can I ask this question? No hands in the air, please. Who, right now, would say that they are filled with the Spirit of God? If you are, you're going to be someone who has the capacity to love <laughs> and to submit and to care and to prioritize your spouse, etc., etc. If, you, if you're not, the old nature in you the flesh, the Bible used to call it, and some translations, it's still there. It's going to be active, and it's going to be powerful, and it's going to be demanding that they serve you, not that you desire to serve them. I'm not asking who here is a believer. Um, it's very possible to be a, a, an authentic believer in Christ, but not be filled by the Spirit of God. You know that. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, a bunch of Christians like us, and he told them, be filled with the Spirit. I'm not talking about whether you're a believer in Christ. The question is, have you opened up your, your life to the presence and the, and the reality of God so much so that the Spirit of God has filled your being and has transformed the way you think and your desires and your life, the way you live? See, and I don't imagine this is new to, to many of you because this text has been taught in so many different locations and so many times, by myself included. The text in, in English says, be, be filled by the Spirit of God, but the Greek actually communicates incredibly clearly the, that, that what's really being said here is be filled and keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not that you become a Christian and you're filled with the Spirit for the rest of your life. <laughs> that kind of seeps and humanity takes over again. Our selfishness takes over again. So, you know, what, what, what this is about, what, this, what we are coached to, what we are moved toward, if we want to have this incredible relationship that I've described, if you want to be a husband or a wife that is filled and Christ-like and submissive in all that you do, which will only produce life in you and in your relationship, we have to come to God again and again and again and again and again, <laughs> day after day after day after day. And in that place, we have to sit in the presence of God and we open this incredible book, his word, and we open our lives to the presence of God and to his truth, and we confess our sins. We, we must do that so as to not grieve the Holy Spirit and, and, and live right, in a right relationship with the Lord, repenting of sin and moving beyond it. And we, we, we have to yield our lives entirely to the living God in whose presence we find ourselves. And as we do these things, the Spirit of God comes so close. The Spirit of God does this miraculous thing and to use these words, the Spirit of God fills our lives with his very being. I love thinking of the tabernacle in the Old Testament when, when the Spirit of God would come as a cloud and, 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 and just fill that tent of meeting. It's like that. <laughs> the Spirit of God comes and, and you are caught up in intimate connection with the living God. And you know you sit in his presence and he speaks to you from his word and he convicts you of sin and you confess it and you recognize his greatness and you yield your life to the reality of God. And he fills us and as he fills us with himself by his spirit, our hearts change and our minds change in terms of understanding 
and our desires become those of God? My friends, we become like the Christ whose spirit fills our lives. If you've never encountered that reality, never mind day after day after day after day, but even once, there's something that you need to discover of God that is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to tell you, when, when we are filled with God, we are changed. <laughs> we are. <laughs> when I'm hitting stride in terms of godliness, it's not because of my capacity, it's because of the Spirit of God at work within me. And my friends, if you are a husband and you want to be a godly husband and you want to be like Jesus in your relationship with your wife, be filled with the Spirit of God. And if you are of a wife and you want to be a godly wife and you want to be like Jesus in relationship to your husband, <laughs> be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. That's the secret, right? That's the secret. I want to finish this morning by reading two passages uh, to you from Galatians chapter 5. And they tell us about two ways of living. Two, it characterizes two types of living. One way is lived out according to the flesh. Some translations say it. Uh, the fallen nature which we are born with. Uh, other translations talk about the sinful human nature. That's just, it's just us being us without God, separate from him. Uh, the, other, the other passage describes the fruit of the Spirit, what happens when the Spirit of God is given free reign in us to transform us and change us day by day. As I read this text, it's not specifically about marriage, it's about life in the church, it's about all kinds of relationships, but I want you to ask yourself, which type of marriage do I want? How do I want my marriage to be characterized by these two passages? So Galatians 5, please, verse 16 to 21. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, same point. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves, <laughs> I want my way. <laughs> the sinful nature wants to do evil. That's a lovely thought, huh? Which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. That's a good thought. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Anybody want to be a really good spouse but can't quite get there? I, w I really want to be loving. I want to be kind. I want to be good. I want to be patient. I mean, you fill in the adjective, but I can't get there? It's because, you see, the, the, the sinful human nature is prominent and powerful. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are, under, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. You get filled by the Spirit of God. You go beyond any law that was ever written by Moses. <laughs> you don't need it in a sense, right? It's just in you. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Who, who would like a marriage characterized by this? You know, you don't have to put up your hand, but just think about it. Um, sexual immorality? Mm, I don't think so. Impurity? Lustful pleasures? Nope. Idolatry, that's when we elevate something above all else, including God. <laughs> Always brings destruction, according to Scripture. Sorcery, and then some that are really potentially relevant to the marriage relationship itself. Hostility, quarreling. You want your relationship characterized by fighting with each other and being hostile toward one another. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, which are so often so destructive. Selfish ambition, there it is. Nail on the head regarding Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> is that what you want your relationship characterized by? Dissensions? Division? 
distance from one another, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And then here comes these, this powerful statement. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just pause. If that characterizes your life, you need to do some serious work with God. Because according to this text, you have not yet been redeemed and renewed internally to produce a different kind of life. You really need to do serious work with God. The other kind of life that Paul describes comes to us in Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 26. And it's this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Think of a grapevine. What does it produce? Grapes. An apple tree produces apples. It's just a natural production of who you are and what you are in Christ. It just comes. And by the way, it's not hard when the Spirit is powerfully at work. It is your heart's desire, and he enables you to be like this. <laughs> Love. Love for one another. Joy. Oh, how, how we need more joy in our relationships, don't we? Peace versus conflict, strife, dissensions. Patience. Ah, wow. We all need patience, and God can give it to us in large measure. Kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness to one another. Gentleness as opposed to a harshness with which we sometimes treat one another. And self-control, <laughs> you know, to keep the words inside that you're just so ready to say, which would be like a, a dagger in the heart, right? Words which Scripture tells us can be so destructive. And again, there is no law against these things. <laughs> it's all good. This is all good. My friends, I want to tell you the secret to a great relationship very simply is to be filled with, 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 the, with the Spirit of God. That's it. And to keep on being filled on a daily basis so that we become that spouse and you start with yourself who is loving and humble and serving-oriented, submitting ourselves to our spouse out of reverence for Christ. You know, I, I have a deep conviction that every marriage represented here and the heart of every person here that desire to be in this relationship, which is incredibly good. But it's only going to come when Christ, by his presence, enables us to be what we can be. See, we come to Scripture and it tells us that Christ saves us. We come to scripture and, and it says that we are saved by Christ because of his work on the cross and his resurrection. We are forgiven. We are made children of God. We are brought into intimate connection and relationship with God, which will last through eternity. But you know, the saving doesn't stop at that point. It's just the beginning of an ongoing series of salvation experiences. Anybody here have a marriage that needs saved? A whole lot or maybe even a little bit. You see, the resource for us is not in ourselves. It is not found in the human being. It is always found in the Savior, and his name is Christ. And it's when Christ enables and empowers us that we will be able to take hold of Genesis chapter 2 and no longer live according to chapter 3. It is when Christ's Spirit is alive and well and moving powerfully in us that we become people who are able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and love our spouse 
in the way they want loved, yes, but in the way which we too want to love them. Some of you will uh, hear this sermon today, this word of God to you today, and go home and forget about it. I'm not uh, naive enough to think otherwise. But I hope and I pray that you'll go home and you will get into the presence of God and you will start to practice being filled with the Spirit so much so that you are made new in Him. Drawing close to God, yielding your life to Him, confessing your sin, inviting Him to fill you. Very literally, ask Him to do it. So much so that God is at work in you, making you like Him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that whenever we have struggle, need, difficulty, challenge, that it points us not to ourselves and our own capacity, but to you. Lord God, there are many marriages represented here, people who are married and people who long to be married and, and want to take hold of the, of the dream and, and, and really experience what marriage can be. So today, God, what we pray is that you will enable us to focus our attention on being filled with you again and again and again and again. To open up our lives to your spirit uh, so much so that your spirit resides in us, not just a little bit, but in its fullness. His fullness. So that we really are people who display the fruit of the spirit because of the work of God in us. Father, I pray right now for marriages represented here which are really struggling and in trouble and need saved. I pray you'll give people hope that in you those marriages can be saved. And I pray, Lord, that you will work by your spirit so that they will be saved. Lord, for marriages which are kind of normal, we just pray for a, a, a fresh wind of your spirit to blow in and through these, the people represented. Lord God, we pray with all of our hearts that you will teach us what it means to be people who are filled by your Spirit and who keep on being filled by your Spirit so that we might have your heart, Lord Jesus, your mind and your desire. Teach us, our God, what it means to be so, that we might submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.